You're listening to EE Times on air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Welcome to Brains and Machines, a deep dive into neuromorphic engineering and biologically inspired technology. In this episode, EE Times regular Sonny Baines talks to Professor Giacomo Indiveri, a stalwart neuromorphic engineer based at the Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich, Switzerland. You'll learn how he sees the trade-offs between analog and digital in the marketplace, the chips he has in the lab and on the drawing board, and, as a purist, the evolution of the term neuromorphic. But first, today's EE Times current headlines. China gears up for chip dumping, ex-DOC official says. Observers warn legacy chips and EV batteries are targets for China's next round of dumping in a bid to distort U.S. tech markets. Rock M is AMD's number one priority, exec says. AMD's Vamsi Bapana admits software is a journey, but the open source community can, quote, help bridge the gap. BSC about to dispatch Mare Nostrum 5 for critical research. EE Times recently visited the Barcelona Supercomputing Center, where execs gave a comprehensive view of the new Marinostrum 5, the main areas of research, and a glimpse into the European supercomputing strategy and future. Now back to Brains and Machines. Your hosts are Dr. Sonny Baines of University College London and Dr. Giulia D'Angelo of the Italian Institute of Technology. Welcome to Brains and Machines. I am Giulia D'Angelo. And I'm Sunny Baines. In today's episode, Sunny will talk to Giacomo Indiveri, a professor at the Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich, Switzerland, about his evolving designs for chips that can learn. After the interview, we will be talking to Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University about the issues they raise. Thanks, Giulia. Giacomo is a professor in an institute that sits between two universities, the ETH and the University of Zurich. His neuromorphic cognitive systems group develops computational models of cognitive processes, analog and digital circuits, and both single and multi-chip systems based on asynchronous spiking networks. He's been involved with a number of startups, with SynSense being the most in the news lately. There are links to his work and some of the specific papers we'll be discussing on our website. You can check them out at brainsandmachines.net. I met Giacomo at his office at the University of Zurich campus. Giacomo and Diveri, welcome to Brains and Machines. Can you start by telling me a little bit about your technical background and how you got involved in neuromorphic engineering? Sure, thanks, Sunny. So I'm an electrical engineer by training. I started at the University of Genova, and uh, already there I was interested in biophysics. After I got my master's degree, I enrolled into a PhD program that was indeed on biophysics. This was in the early 90s, 92, where we got to know Federico Fagin, John Hopfield, and many others. So I, I really got fascinated by the field of neural networks at the time. So this was at Caltech? No, this was still in Italy. It was a biophysics postgraduate program, which was training students on neural networks. And Federico Fagin came from California and Hopfield came from Caltech, but we were in Isola d'Elba, actually. It was an island in Italy where they just kept us there and trained us for some time. And there I also got into electronics because as part of this training program, I also did an internship in ST microelectronics 
in Agrate Brianza. So I got to know a little bit about technology and chip design and VLSI. And there I wrote to Christoph Koch and I said, you know, I'm really interested in these types of things. I learned about neural networks. Would you be interested? I have this postgraduate funding. Would you be interested in hosting me there? And he accepted. So I was really lucky that I could go to Caltech. This was 94 by now. And that's where I learned about neuromorphic engineering from the source, Carl Vermeid. Christoph Koch was my mentor. I was working under Christoph Koch. He then also kept on keeping me there with his own money, as with fellowships from ONR and other U.S. agencies. But it was also going to Carverland, to the lab meeting. I took Carver's courses. Toby was actually the TA when I was a student. I was there as a postdoc, but I took the course anyways. CNS 182, the class that was teaching uh, analog circuit design and neuromorphic circuits. But then in the lab of Christoph, I also was exposed to neuroscience. So I really was participating in the meetings with Christoph and Christoph's team on neuroscience. And so that's how I got really interested in both neuroscience on one side and neuromorphic and electrical engineering on the other. You're known as someone who has stayed true to that original vision of subthreshold analog neuromorphic circuits. Can you explain what these circuits are? Because many people will not have come across them and what some of the benefits are. Yes, the original proposal that Carver and Misha Mahold actually were making was that if you use transistors in this sub-threshold domain, so with the gate to source voltage below the, th the transistor's threshold voltage, you have the same physics of neurons, of, of proteic channels. So the transistor channel behaves like a proteic channel, and so if you put transistor's channels together, you get at the macroscopic level behaviors like you see in neurons. And it really allows you to use a physical medium to emulate the biophysics with something that you have control over. You can actually design the chips and test them and they don't die so you can keep on doing experiments on them. So it's really an interesting approach for testing hypotheses on neur real neural circuits with real electronic circuits. So from the point of view of basic research it's really fascinating and that's why I'm still fascinated. You can do really elegant circuits that reproduce properties of real cells, properties of real circuits. So for basic research, it's really a, a useful tool, like an additional tool among the tool set of neuroscientists and researchers in general. And I think it's really useful and that's why I keep on, on doing it. But it also has benefits for technology because these circuits use picoampere, nanoampere currents, uh, millivolts voltages, so the, the power consumption is, is really low. And especially now, but throughout the whole years, but particularly now that people are starting to be worried about power consumption, energy, sustainability, green electronics, this has become actually quite uh, appealing and interesting also for companies. Companies like Samsung, Huawei, Sony, that would have never thought of using these noisy circuits are now considering them because they have these advantages, potential advantages over classical approaches. The last chip you produced was Dynapse 2. Can you tell us a little bit about that chip and the kinds of experiments you've been doing with it? Yes, so that's a chip that has these subthreshold analog circuits. We implemented neurons and synapses that express the same type of dynamics that you see in real neurons and synapses. We broke up these populations of neurons into four different cores. There is 256 neuron circuits, physical copies of neurons in each core. Each neuron has a bunch of synapses, 64 at least per neuron. And they are coupled dynamical systems. So we then perform experiments that try to reproduce 
the data that we observe in neuroscience papers, in biology. We use them also for teaching. So we have classes where we ask students or we ourselves connect the neurons together in order to form coupled central pattern generators, coupled oscillators, recurrent networks that form attractors. So we really explore the theoretical neuroscience models, again, with the physical medium. These chips are indeed sensitive to noise, sensitive to temperature changes. So out of all of the models that we explore, only some actually work in a real physical medium and, and some don't. Some are very sensitive to parameters, some are more robust. So we use these to validate and invalidate hypotheses that come from theoreticians and from computer science or computational neuroscientists. So that's the basic research part. Indeed, these are low power, so we can actually also use them to do practical applications. An example of a killer app for these types of chips is uh, processing biosignals, because our chips are slow, the biosignals are slow, the time constants are well matched, and then they are very low power. So in principle, you could keep these chips on your body, in a t-shirt, in a cap, with a small battery for days. And the type of biosignals that we process are, for example, EMG signals. In ideal cases, they, if, they, if you're an amputee, you could use these chips to decode your muscle activity intentions and then open or close a prosthetic hand. Or we could use it to monitor your heart, your heartbeat and uh, detect if you have heartbeat anomalies in real time, continuously, always on. Unlike when you do it on your smartwatch where you have to turn it on for a few minutes and then turn it off, otherwise it would be too power hungry, it would waste, uh, burn the battery down too quickly. Lately, we also started to apply to EEG analysis, both for detecting high frequency oscillations in case of detecting the epileptogenic zone or for detecting epileptic seizures for these types of applications. As someone who wears a smartwatch, I have to ask you a question about that. Would that mean that you could imagine having a neuromorphic chip in the back of my smartwatch no. to improve the power so it wouldn't be possible? No, because you already have a processor on your smartwatch and adding something that is low power to something that's already burning quite enough power, in the, meaning like milliwatts instead of microwatts, would not add anything. And in fact, it's easier to program a smartwatch in Python or, or, or whatever software framework than to configure your chip. Uh, I, th I think I meant something slightly different. I was more thinking from this sensor processor point of view. In fact, the killer app is really to have in memory, but also in sensor computing. If, you, if we could make a sensor that is also intelligent by adding a few neurons or a few hundred neurons, that would be perfect. But we cannot compete with smartwatches. We should, uh, our goal is to try to find applications where you cannot use a smartwatch. There is no other solution. For example, elderly people that forget to recharge their smartwatch. Then if you have a band that they wear and forget that only turns on when what calls the family or the nurse when necessary, this is the use case where, that we are trying to find where Really, if, if you already have a smartwatch and, and, and you can remember to use it well, it's hard to compete with this technology. So we are trying to find use cases that cannot be solved now with standard technologies like the ones that you have in your smartwatch. So I understand you have another chip in the pipeline. Can you tell us a bit about that one? Yes. So we are riding the wave of Moore's law. So all the chips we've been doing, they've been following sort of the progress in technologies, scaling of transistors. So we went from the Caltech science in which transistors were long, two microns, 
to now where there are 180 nanometers was the latest. And the one in the pipeline now is 22 nanometers. So we're taking advantage of the progress in technology. This is a fully depleted silicon on insulator, so FDSOI process, which is very good for analog, for achieving, for example, long time constants, the type of time constants we need for processing biosignals. And we are exploring new ideas, new circuits. So in this new chip, there will be on-chip learning circuits. There will be multi-core asynchronous digital circuits that somehow dialogue with the analog circuits that do the neurodynamics. And we will then try to use them both to process biosignals, but also because they have on-chip learning to adapt to the changes or maybe adapt to different users. So these learning circuits hopefully will be able to change with the person that's wearing them or change with the system that's, that's wearing them as the statistics of the input change. So the existing chip you have does not have any learning on the chip. But this new one will. And I understand it also will have a slightly different architecture in the sense that it's designed around a kind of population coding of outputs rather than just having single neurons to classify. Yes, the general architecture is the same. Usually on these chips, we always put collections of neurons they're usually always decoupled and through the asynchronous digital circuits and memory elements, we can then connect them. And this is the same for a vast majority of chips. Even Loihi has multiple cores. True North has multiple cores in which each core has a collection of neurons or a population of neurons. So this approach is still there, but we realize that rather than relying on individual neurons, which are very noisy, we need to uh, have populations of neurons. So we will be looking at the average activity of populations of neurons as units, fundamental units that represent variables, represent classification results, and not single neurons. And so now in this new chip, we decided we will make cores with smaller number of neurons, not thousands or hundreds, but tens. And those will actually represent a node in a network, in a neural network. So we, we just realized that in order to have robust computation, we need to look at populations and we cannot rely on single neurons. So I'm assuming you would get two advantages from that. One is that because you're using a number of neurons, the accuracy is going to be better, but also the redundancy gives you a robustness, a sort of Mm fail-safe aspect. Yes, exactly. So we actually try to characterize with the existing chips, with the Dynaps, how bad is the mismatch and uh, with the single neurons. And we did realize by, that by averaging over uh, clusters of neurons, you can increase the accuracy. Of course, the larger you average, the less noisy the output is. The, it's a standard the sort of statistic, right? The sigma goes down with the square root of the number. But if you connect these neurons in winner-take-all networks or in other nonlinear networks, the sigma goes down faster than the square root. So you can even get better performance by using averages over relatively small numbers of neurons, tens, like 16, 8, 16, 32. So this will improve accuracy. Of course, these, by construction, these are parallel populations of circuits. So it's not like a time multiplex unit that just crunches numbers through 32. It's really 32 physical copies. So if one copy breaks, we expect that it's going to be fault tolerant. So the performance will maybe degrade, but you won't have to throw the chip away. So we also get this added benefit of fault tolerance, but it's no black magic. It's just by construction. We pay the price by having larger area. So these chips, if you have to have 32 copies of neurons, it occupies more area. So there is no free lunch. That's the thing we pay. So we we have to use more area to, to follow this approach. 
So you've written a couple of papers recently that at least I read into them that they were warning chip designers to avoid trying to compete on counterproductive benchmarks. I'm thinking specifically of things like trying to minimize power consumption or minimize uh, area when actually those parameters are not particularly relevant to the problem at hand. Another one is, you talked about this actually a minute ago, creating really fast networks when actually the phenomena you're trying to track are quite slow. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us why you think this is a problem and uh, how you've seen this as an issue in the community? Yes. So a general issue with benchmarks is that people get focused on very detailed and specific problems like minimizing power consumption or if you want in the AI field, maximizing accuracy without thinking of the big picture of the problem. So in this particular case that you mentioned, if uh, a whole system like a sensor plus a processor is burning or like a drone is burning, you know, tens or hundreds of milliwatts, minimizing power consumption and going down to one microwatt or 10 microwatts is not going to make a big difference at the system level. So it's important to think of the whole system end to end. Also, for example, converting data very faithfully and then having a neural network that throws away 90% of the data to classify only the output and give you one bit. So there also one can save in resources, maybe in power and, and area. So that's one message that it's important to think of the whole problem from a holistic point of view and not just the single circuit or the single network that one is focusing on. And thinking of the whole problem is if it's dealing with biosignals or natural signals like speech and wants to create a small device that is low power and compact, a promising solution is to have a system that resonates with the data, that processes the data at the same rate in which the data is produced. So that's why it's useful to have circuits like the subthreshold circuits that we design that are slow, that have time constants that are matched to the slow time constants of the biosignals. So there also, it's another example of thinking of the problem in its holistic view from saving power also by looking at the data. What is the data that I want to process? What do I want to get out of it? And what is the best way? Of course, analog is not always the best way. One should be open to choosing the best solution for the problem at hand. In some cases, pure digital is, is also a possibility or maybe uh, usually it's going to be a mix of both, a mix of analog and a mix of digital circuits. So this question of benchmarking has come up a lot recently. I know there was a NeuroBench project designed to create benchmarks that actually suit these problems that neuromorphic engineering is good at solving. Have you been involved with that at all? I have been involved, but peripherally. So I was invited to, to discuss and contribute, and I did contribute. But I must say, many other people were involved much more and have been contributing more. I think this is a really important pr problem, but it's a hard problem, it, particularly for the neuromorphic community, which is building different hardware platforms. Creating a general benchmark that can be used by all these different platforms is very difficult because each platform is not general. They're very specific. And so if one platform is optimized for low numbers of neurons and power, and another one is optimized for high fidelity with high numbers of neurons, the same benchmark will, will give different results. But the two systems have been designed with different goals. So it, it doesn't make sense to compare them on a general benchmark. The other problem is if one wants to have a benchmark that works, that is optimally suited for all these architectures, the only solution is to find the minimum common denominator that will work on all of them. And that will be 
by definition, a very simple problem, a very simple benchmark. So it won't be exhaustive. It won't be enough to compare the performance of these different platforms. Neurobench is starting from algorithms and they are starting by saying, let's at least think of algorithms that can be useful, can be solved by different neuromorphic platforms and go there. And then the next step will be, let's try to find benchmarks that can actually be run on the different platforms. That's the point where I see it's going to be very hard to find a common ground. Maybe a suite of benchmarks or some uh, performance metrics will be found, but it's still a very difficult problem and it's an open problem. So Synapse, one of the companies you helped to found, is currently only producing digital chips, albeit asynchronous ones. Mm -hmm. From you, that seems a strange happenstance. Can you Tell us about that and, you know, should we read anything into this? Yes, indeed, I was very disappointed when they decided, uh, the CEO, uh, Ning, Chao Ning, decided to implement a spiking neural network chip only using digital. But I do understand them. They, they have time to market issues. They need to make sure that things actually work. And his explanation was that for the short term, we need to show that we have the expertise of implementing spiking neural network hardware. They also believe that in the long term, the analog can be potentially a winning solution for some specific applications. So my hopes are still there. I still hope that this analog way of processing signals using spiking neural networks will actually work in the real world. And there is also the intention, at least in discussions that we are having with the Syncense employees and the Syncense managers and the CEO to invest in this in the future. But for, I understand that for the time being, they really have to show that they can get something out there in the world that works. And so they have my complete understanding and support. One of the things that people who have been in the field for a while will notice is that the term neuromorphic, which used to specifically mean this sub-threshold analog that we've been talking about, that term neuromorphic now seems to mean something else. Would you like to talk about that morphing and what that means in the field to you? Yes, indeed, the term neuromorphic has morphed and it took different meanings for different communities. So there is a community of people still using it like I am to implement models of cortical circuits using subthreshold analog circuits and, and uh, asynchronous digital. But there is a whole new community of device physics experts and researchers, material science experts and researchers that use the term neuromorphic to refer to memristive devices, memristors and architectures. And also the machine learning community is talking about neuromorphic computing and making links to, to deep networks or even to neural network accelerators based on event-based data showing how they are neuromorphic. Yeah, while I was frustrated at the beginning with this, this corruption of the original term, I now understand that it does make sense. There, if there is anything that is hardware and related to some brain-inspired type of computing, it, it does make sense to use the term neuromorphic. It's just my problem with that is that now it's unclear. When, when someone uses the term neuromorphic, it means so many different things. It, it's not clear what is this person doing if, if he or she is a neuromorphic computing or a neuromorphic engineer person? Uh, yes, so that was the, the main problem. And, and the other is when we are saying it's neuromorphic and by, by association we get linked to deep networks, it's very hard to show that it's actually two different things. It's like apples and oranges. Whereas 
if we get linked by them, people naturally ask us, how do you compare to deep networks? In particular, there's always this question of, yes, but what about the accuracy? And that's not the point of these neuromorphic architectures that we are exploring. We are trying to solve problems, practical problems. Even if 80% gets the job done, it doesn't have to be 99.99% benchmarks in software simulations. So that's really something that needs to be clarified in the broader community of both neuromorphic and machine learning and deep network uh, researchers. Giacomo Indivery, thank you for coming on to Brains and Machines. And thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Sunny. I think Giacomo touched a lot of interesting and very hot topics. And for more about Giacomo's work, please go to brainsandmachines.net. Now, we welcome back our regular commentator, Professor Ralph Etienne Cummings from Doms, Hopkins University. Nice to be back with you too, and to discuss yet another interesting topic in, in neuromorphic engineering. Hi, Ralph. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. So Giacomo, as I said, touched a lot of uh, things that I would like to discuss. And he was talking about the, the P-compare, the nanoampere currents and the millivolt voltages and the power consumptions. I would like to ask you a tricky question. Are we or are we not good for industrial applications? Look, I think um, Giacomo kind of hits it on the head. There are certain places where adding a micro power device changes nothing because the baseline is you are burning milliwatts or watts. So adding a microwatt to that changes nothing. On the other hand, there are applications where having a device that only burns microwatts is super, super important. Imagine an implantable device that is being powered maybe through the skin with a coil or scavenging energy from the environment, or even you know, having its own battery process that's basically taking energy from the environment in which it lives, which is under the skin. All these are micro power devices, right? And now, if you have a processing element in the chip or in the module that is uh, operating at that same power level as the generation of power, then of course that's the ideal scenario. Now the question again is what is being done with it, right? And then how does it interface with the biology? How does it interface with the environment in which it lives? All of things that neuromorphic engineering can provide an opportunity for our designers and our um, engineers and our creative minds to come up with ways that we can really develop application-specific devices that would be useful in those domains. And I think Professor Giacomo Indiveri does a very good job of explaining examples of such. I do strongly agree. And I'd like to touch also another thing that he said about BioSignal as a killer mm -hmm. app. So I do agree with him. We touched it briefly the, the previous podcast, but I'd like to dive a little bit into this. And um, we already have some researchers that are working on that such as Elisa Donati, for example, and she's strongly working on EMG signals. And I'd like to know a little bit more about what's your view and if you think that this could be the future for us. So I don't like the word collab. So I want to say that <laughs> from get-go. I know Giacomo uses it a couple of times. You know, it's, nah, we don't want to kill anything, especially not when we're talking about biology, right? <laughs> but anyway, that's a different story. I think, I do think that there are multiple places where this low power, speaking the same language as biology, so to speak, will play a, a deep role, especially in the realm of biomedical engineering. And again, this is not totally 
novel in the sense of this is not only the first time it's being done. I mean, you can go back to Ranu Young's work, to um, Musa Valdi's work, where they were the first one, actually, if, my, if I remember correctly, to, to connect a neuromorphic chip to a spinal cord in a closed-loop fashion and actually entrain the behavior of the spinal cord through a neuromorphic chip. And then later on in, in the late 2000s and early 2020s, my lab has also worked on interfacing neuromorphic chips with the spinal cord and getting animals to rewalk after spinal cord injury. This is with Vivian Musharrar and with um, Keir Pearson at the uh, University of, of Alberta. You're touching what I really find interesting now, right? Which is how do you make neuromorphic chips that speaks the same language as biology and then close the loop around the engineered element with the living element and close that loop in a tight way and, and restore functionality. So Giacomo hitting on that, on those points, is I think where things are going to go, at least one of the directions, right? And then you can go a little bit more basic and say, look, we could grow cell cultures or, or organoids in the dish and use those as well as part of the computation. I know that Sunny has her perspective on the ethics of it, and it's true, and we want us to think about that. But however, from a computational perspective, you can take advantage of the real living tissue and take advantage of neuromorphic systems that are artificial and having them speaking to each other in their common language and actually do computation that is relevant to the world. So that's the thing that I am also very much interested in. And I think Giacomo hit of all these three, which are places where neuromorphic engineering, it's, in fact, probably more on the analog subthreshold stuff, which is not necessarily my approach, but certainly a place where I think that can be a, a big input, have a big impact. Now, another thing Giacomo spoke about, the benchmarks and the comparisons, and you know, there is this paper uh, that is coming out, that is Neurobench, and that they mainly, we mainly want to compare us, ourselves, with the, the current state of the art. And I want to, to know your opinion on this, because from my point of view, we are playing a different game, and this is this seems like also what Giacomo said. And do we need to solve the same problems in the same ways? Is that needed, or maybe we are good for something else? We need to solve problems differently. So I would say yes to both of those questions, <laughs> in a sense that there are obviously certain things that we do that is unique, that is uh, application specific, that there's no equivalent um, benchmarking that we can do other than amongst ourselves to improve our own devices. And then there are other things that are in the mainstream right now, like deep learning and speech recognition and so on, where we could also play a game there. So think about NLP, natural language processing, the computational elements basically being used to, in order to implement recognition at high rates and so on. Can we implement those things in a neuromorphic fabric? And then if we can, how well do we do compared to the purely computational approaches, right? It would be malpractice for us not to ask whether we can match it, right? How far along the accuracy and the efficiency that you find in the computational model does the neuromorphic model come? So it is important for us to be able to measure that. So there are suddenly with vision probably as well, with language and so on, there are some places where, yes, we should compare. And then we come to the other side, which is the purely neuromorphic side. Then we're basically comparing amongst ourselves, right? We've got to have the right databases to 
check the efficacy of our algorithms, our neuromorphic algorithms. So the databases such as what Garrick Orchard developed for MNIST, event-based MNIST, and there's been extended MNIST, there's been all kinds of other you know, event-based databases that can be used uh, to test spiking algorithms or can be maybe non-spiking as well. But that gives you the front end, the data that then hopefully we can all compare amongst ourselves and see whether or not we're making progress. Um, in terms of improving algorithms, improving accuracy, improving latency, which is something that we talked about earlier on. All of that plays a role, and we have to be able to measure it. So metrics are important. I don't think we can ever get away from having metrics to, to see how well we're doing. What's interesting to me about this whole debate is that actually the reason I found neuromorphic engineering as a subject, you'll remember, Ralph, that when I first got involved, I had come from optical computing, not neuromorphic, not analog. And what I found was that it was becoming pointless for me as a journalist to write about a subject when I wasn't comparing it to other things that were also in development. One of the things that we spend a lot of time doing or that scientists spend a lot of time doing is proposing how their new technology is going to be better than the one that you can already buy. But that's actually a fruitless comparison, right? Because you're not gonna be competing with the one that you can already buy. You're going to be competing with the one that's there when you finally hit the market. And so what I learned as a journalist from that is you always have to be looking at trajectories. So for instance, optical computing could compare itself with digital all it wanted. And we were talking about, for instance, optical memories, holographic memories and a trillion bit cubes. Saying that you can have a trillion bits in a hard drive, it's laughable now. Right? It might have been in 1990, whatever it was, it might have been impressive sounding, but it's laughable now because of Moore's Law. And that's one of the things that I think we always have to be doing is paying attention, not just to where we can add value, but where other players are coming in, whether it's the folks who are doing nanotechnology stuff or the folks who are doing other flavors of technology. There are still people doing optical technology for that matter. And being able to look at those all and be able to compare them against each other, not just for right now, but for 10 years time when we, we actually might have some of these products coming out. I know we have products on the market today, but I'm just trying to think ahead. But anyway, what I was trying to say is that I got involved with neuromorphic because I thought it was an important thing to compare with the kind of optical stuff I was interested in, and then became more interested in the neuromorphic than I was in the optical, which is, I guess, the way these things go. But I think that issue of metrics, it's critical in technology in general, because if we're not always looking at what are we at now and where are we going to be, then we don't know how we're going to compare with our competitors, whatever they are, in a few years' time. Totally. And one of the things also that I want to say is, is this. We should not be competing with the stuff that's on the market, as you're indicating, right? We should not be competing with the systems that's been optimized probably for the last 30, 40 years by the big companies and try to say, can we beat them now? 
we should be looking at what the system is going to be like in 15, 20 years in the future. That, that is, at least in my view, that's the role of academic research, right? We are looking 20 years in the future. And that's where we're hoping that you know, neuromorphic engineering or the low power applications, the you know, combination of sub-threshold and above-threshold, which I'm more of an above-threshold guy, <laughs> comes into play. And, but always looking at what the future looks like. And I like the way you put it, Sonny, in terms of once we're comparing to our, what's now, it's not sufficient. We have to look at what it's going to be like in the future as well. Yeah, I love the way you phrased it too. It was poetic. <laughs> but this links amazingly with another question I have that is related to scalability. We have this scalability problem on us. And he's saying, Giacomo is saying that, of course, a neuron tells us nothing. We need a population. And the more neurons you need, the more populations you need, the more robust you want to be, the more neurons you need to have also to get overlapping. And then the number of neurons increases, and then we have the scalability problem. Like, where do you think that up to now is the trade-off? What can we do? Because, of course, we can talk about simulation as much as we want, but then we need to go to, into the real world. Into the real world, going around with 50 boards attached to a robot doesn't make any sense. What do you think? What's your view up to now? Look, this is a research topic as we speak, right? Because it's definitely not known what it's going to look like in the f in 20 years or whatever, as I just said, <laughs> just yet. We are making strides because we are now looking at materials where individual circuit modules that used to take microns to implement can now be implemented in nanometers using devices, material science devices such as memristors and things of that sort. So we are already getting the integration, the thousandfold integration of scalability, as you put it, Julia, in, in the one dimension. There's another dimension, right? There's a third dimension, which is stacking of these multiple one-dimensional devices. And that now is being done where you could have 10, 15 layers of chips being put on top of each other through uh, wafer uh, vias and things of that sort, right? So now you can also start making systems that are going to be much larger in scale because you get another factor of 10 in vertical. So you get basically 10 to the fourth scaling up by going to these smaller and smaller devices and multiple layers. So I think we're getting there. But of course, that again is not something that's going to be comparable to the current technology today. It's going to be something that's comparable to the technology in the future. And the last thing that I would say is, and it's something that I referred to a moment ago, is again, the combination of biology and electronics working together, you take advantage of all the richness of the biology, all the, not just the neurons and the synapse, but also the astrocytes, also the chemicals, also the neurotransmitters, all of that now being part of the living organism or living portion of the organism, I guess I should say, and then connecting that to our artificial system, that will give us additional scalability that may be even more dense and what we can do with our artificial systems. And I just wanted to say also that this, I think, can be a false dichotomy between lots and lots of neurons for ultimate precision, because do we really need ultimate precision? Is that really the goal 
of what we're trying to do. If we have a robot that's just trying to get around and is constantly looking to see where it is and how its wheels are slipping, if it's a, that kind of robot, how the dust has got under its feet and there, the friction is changing, ultimate precision is not going to help for, for these kind of applications. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't fantastic robots that can already achieve some of the things that we're talking about. I've seen some of the Boston Dynamics videos, as I think everyone on the planet has, including every primary school child, and been very impressed with these. But it's also about the computing power that makes these things intelligent, makes them able to handle their environment. And so I think we will be looking for slightly different kinds of applications, and that will look for different kinds of precision. I totally agree with you. And I was saying this in a meeting like an hour ago, saying that actually, as long as it works, it's fine. It's basically what we do. As long as I'm able to grasp a bottle, that's fine. The goal, the task is achieved. I totally agree with you. If I can mention coming from IT, where actually the ICAV, like the robot that we have, the humanoid robot that we have is fully open source. If I can actually just say one thing that I would like Boston Dynamics to tell us a little bit more because since that they are so ahead of us, why they don't share not everything, but just a little bit more? Is this because the IIT and the robots that we have is fully open source? So I need to just mention it. I think I can answer that. My understanding is that they're almost entirely funded by the military. So that's your answer in a nutshell. And I think that's always been the problem. I have to say that as a journalist for 30 some years, some of the coolest technology I've ever covered has been for the military. And then it goes into this box and you never get to follow it anymore because it's too secret. And uh, I'm sure Ralph would have stories to tell about all sorts of interesting projects that you just never hear about anymore because they're completely secret. Some of your colleagues I know I've talked to about projects that I can't get reports on, I can't really write about because they just won't say what they're doing. Exactly. I just have one last question, and, I, and I'd, I'd like to know Ralph's opinion on that. Giacomo said that the current state of the art of AI are focused on maximizing as much as they can the accuracy, but losing the big picture of the problem. What do you think about this? Yeah, I guess it's a question of, again, the specifics. If we're just talking about image recognition, then yes. Or we're talking about just speech recognition as well. It's probably the same way. But now I think folks are starting to think about generation, right? So speech generation, image generation, or ideas generation, right? So what does creativity mean from a perspective of AI? You know, where you create something that has never been seen previously, right? Yes, you use the previous data as pieces, but you're going to generate something completely new. So what does accuracy mean there? doesn't mean anything for you, right? Because it's all new. And this notion of what a colleague of mine here at Hopkins called Joshua Vogelstein refers to as perspective learning, not retrospective learning, not learning, looking at data in the past and saying, oh yeah, that's what you did back then. But using data in the past to say, oh, this is what we will do in the future. That's the next perspective of what all this is going to be. So the accuracy problem then is more like looking backwards and making sure that you can understand what happened Whereas in prospective learning, when looking forward, 
then accuracy doesn't mean the same anymore. He's basically coming up with something really interesting and new and different that will hopefully make the robot more able to navigate things that it has not seen like we do, right? When I go to a new country, a new city, I've never seen those environments, right? But I navigate it. I know exactly what's coming around the corner in a sense, right? I can predict what a car behaves like. So those are all like perspective learning and perspective understanding of what my environment does. And I think that's less on accuracy, but more on on generation, more on prediction. Okay, let's just leave it here. Thanks to you, Sonny, for another great interview and Ralph for your comments as usual. And in our next episode, Sonny will be talking to another scientist from Zurich, Dr. Yulia Sandamirskaya, a roboticist and researcher at Intel, who also has recently joined the Institute of Computational Life Sciences in Vedensville. And as usual, we hope you will join us then. That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening. And thanks to our guest, Professor Giacomo Indiveri from the Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich, Switzerland. EE Times Current is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening.